Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Okay, so for the last couple of days we've been learning about the laws of Nachlas, laws of inheritance, which is the 248th, the last of the positive mitzvahs in the Rambam's system of mitzvah nomenclature. The, the final shear of Rambam, which talks about the mitzvah of Nachlas, the whole collection of halachas, all 11 prakim, all 11 chapters, focus on this singular 248th mitzvah, is the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th chapters of the mitzvah of inheritance. So, in, in addition to everything we've learned, so here are some more details about this mitzvah. As explained previously, it's a mitzvah for inheritance to work in a very specific way. And therefore, the halacha is that a person may not bring somebody else into a position of inheritance and uproot somebody who is supposed to inherit. So for example, somebody has children. He's not happy with his children. But he's very happy with his friends or with his nephew. So he says, I disown my children. They will not inherit me. And instead, my, my friend is going to be my inheritor. That's not permissible. Now you're going to ask the question, but this is a question of money. This is nothing sacred about this. It's a question of who owns the house, who owns the boat. Who owns the bank account, the stocks and bonds? So what's the difference? If I do include the, 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 my children or don't include my children? And the Rambam answers this question. At the beginning of the sixth chapter, he says, it's true. It's only a question of money. It's only a question of money. But you should know that because the Torah tells us with regard to inheritance, it means that it should be for the Jewish people a statute, a statute of justice, which means that it's a chukah, it's a statute, somebody Torah puts in place, and something that should not be changed. And therefore, if somebody tries to change it, that will not be effective. Whether he gives this instruction when he's in perfect health, or whether he gives this instruction when he is on his deathbed, at which times there are special halachas, it's something called matnas shchivmena, the gift that was given from somebody who has fallen ill who is no longer able to function in a normative manner because of the intensity of illness. Nonetheless, in either way, this would be the wrong thing to do. I suppose here is, is a, an appropriate time to interject and point out that there are certain halachas about inheritance with regards to males inheriting over females inheriting, if there are sons versus daughters, and so on and so forth, an eldest son. And we talked about this in the, in the previous days. So what happens if somebody wants to have his residuals, his estate divided up in a way that's a little bit different from the manner of the Torah's nachalot, and maybe for good reasons. So the custom is, and this is actually halacha, that you could, you could establish what they call a living will. A living will means that you, you write down that the moment before you die, you give whatever it is as a gift, but you don't use the language of bequeathment. We don't use the terminology of Yerusha, of inheritance. And then, once the person dies, and then there's an automatic transfer, not even a transfer of property, as we explained, inheritance means that the inheritor is in the place of the inheritee. So usually, when I'm buying or selling, it's my object, I sell it to you, I was the owner, and now the house hasn't moved. The, the jurisdiction, though, has switched. Now it used to be in my jurisdiction, now it's gone over to your jurisdiction. In inheritance... The jurisdiction doesn't change. The, the person you identify with the jurisdiction changes. As it says, Tachat avotecha yibanecha, that the son is the father. Only the father is no longer here, so the son becomes the father. 
And therefore, technically, from a halach perspective, there's no room for, for taxes. Wouldn't this be nice, huh? <laughs> the idea of the government taxing. Why does the government tax? As the government says, this is a transaction. Every transaction you have to pay tax for. You make money, the government has to make some money. That's your partner in everything you do. From a Torah perspective, this is not a transaction. It's a, it really, there's a sacred nature to this. So therefore, what a person could do is, a person could supersede death. He could have a document which supersedes death and passes or gives his estate or his residuals in a way other than Yerusha. A person could have a very good friend and he's indebted to this friend and he wants that friend to enjoy his boat or his house or his condo or his stocks and bonds and his children are miserable to him. So what he could do is, he could give away his stocks and bonds and says, a moment before death, it's transferred over. In which case, it really is a transaction. So this is a little bit of understanding how that works. Now, you, you have to know that, that the, 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 the inheritor and inheritee, it has to be without a question. It has to be without a doubt. Which means that if we hear a rumor that so-and-so died, so then his heirs cannot go and start to make themselves at home in his, in his home or in his bank account. It has to be a clear proof. So, for example, God forbid in a tragic situation, it's a plane crash, there's a, a ship that goes down. We have to have some kind of proof of death. Just like the government requires a death certificate in order to be able to do certain things. It's not good enough if I call up and say, hello, yeah, okay, somebody died. Show me the proof. In halacha we say that the Yorish is not nochel until we bring a ra'oya berura, a clear proof, shemait morishan, that the inheritor of theirs has indeed in fact passed on. <coughs> so the question is, what do we do in a situation where we're not sure? A person disappeared. It was a disaster. And we have absolutely no proof now. In today's day and age, sometimes things can go a little bit more quickly. Once upon a time, these things could take weeks, months, even years. And even in today's day and age, till, till the identification process, there are unaccounted people, people we don't know. There are still Israeli soldiers who are considered missing in action. We don't know. We don't have their remains. We don't know if they're alive or dead. There were American soldiers in Vietnam for decades that were never accounted for. So what do you do in that case? And here we have these estates. We have these residuals. So you have to appoint somebody called an apotropus. We appoint somebody who's going to oversee the estate. Because otherwise, the person is gone. The estate's going to fall apart. Uh, imagine to yourself, you have a property. The property has to be maintained. It has to be, has to be kept up. Somebody's got to collect the rent. The person's not here. Who's going to do it for him? So we, we appoint somebody, who a would-be heir, has to step in, and he becomes the apotropus. He becomes, so to speak, the individual responsible. Although, our sages are careful. They don't use the word apotropus for that. And the reason they don't use the word apotropus is, apotropus is only in the instance when there are minors. And the minors have to be protected. In this case, we say to the person who is a would-be heir, so listen, we don't know what happened to your father. So you now have to have the technical transfer of power is going to go over to you. Just like, I'm using this only as an example, but just to help us understand. When real Sharon, Shavar Afur Shlema, had that stroke and it was incapacitated, so the government in Israel passed certain measures that put the reins of power into the hands of the deputy prime minister who was at the time Omert. Now, he was never elected. And if Ariel Sharon would have woken up the next day, he would reassume power once again. When Reagan was shot, there was a whole dispute who's going to be, for those few hours, who's going to be in charge. It's a, fam a, fam a famous dispute about that. And a, a very uh, a good person who was Secretary of State resigned afterwards because of that. Th these are real issues, right? So what are we going to do? Person is gone. We don't know. Somebody has to step in. So it's not a Yerusha. The heir has not stepped in to take ownership. But at the same time, if we don't respond, that we don't put somebody in charge, 
then there's going to be a diminishment of the estates. Things are going to get lost, things will be broken, things will be stolen. So we put one of the heirs. And if, in fact, the individual, the real owner, comes back and he is alive, so then the heir who stepped in is going to be paid whatever fair market value for his efforts, for overseeing the properties. He'll get a fee and it will go back to the original owner. Of course, if we find out that the heir is dead and there was no choice, well, in that case, so then he becomes the heir. So then what's, there's no issue or problem. Very interestingly, the halacha changes when it comes to a question of minors. And even if it's only some of the yorshim, some of the inheritors are minors, we have an issue here. And the issue is like this. The, we're always concerned that a minor will not have the rights protected. And because the rights are not going to be protected as the kids, and you could sell kids a boat, tell them all kinds of stories. You can make them sign papers. So the, the kid is not there to take care of himself. And in the meantime, you appointed a relative, you appointed his uncle, let's say. So a, a brother is actually an inheritor if there's no children. So you appointed the brother to watch his presumed late brother's estate. Now the late brother has got a bunch of little children. They can't run the estate, they can't take care of the properties. Now the brother has been doing this for 10 years. And finally, the word comes through that, you know what, actually, the brother did die. We have identified his remains, and it's, it's no, nothing to talk about. It has to go to the heirs. In the meantime, the brother comes along and says, uh, by the way, you know, this property was transferred to me. It was given, my brother sold this to me before this whole thing. And he's been there for years already. And the heirs are being robbed of their inheritance. But it's natural. He's, he's a brother. And it, it, so it becomes a, a very, very confusing situation. And the rights of minors will invariably comp- be compromised. This is the reason that the Chaman said that in the case of a minor, and there's a whole halachic nuances of details of what happens when there are multiple inheritors, and one of them is a minor, only <coughs> as a rule. There are exceptions to this, but as a rule, only in a case when there are minors is an apotropus appointed. And the apotropus, we take pains to make sure that he is not a relative. So he shouldn't be able to claim the property or the estate or the residuals. And that way the rights of the minors are going to be protected. The apotropus can be remunerated. However, the last halacha, the very last halacha of laws of Nachlas finishes off and it says, you have to understand, and by the way, you have this in secular law also, that an executor of an estate is invariably protected. He's protected from libels and lawsuits because people are going to accuse the executor of, of doing all kinds of things. The person who's appointed executor of the estate has to be a person that, that the original owner trusted. There's a trust element, a trust factor there. And that, that actually, which is found in modern secular Canadian law, that, that's in the Torah, it's, it's, in, it's in the Gemara. But the Rambam finishes off by telling you that even though the apotropus does not have to give you an accounting, he doesn't have to tell you, so what was this check for? Oh, that check, that check was to repair the back fence. Oh, okay, fine. That's it. And what was this check for? This check was that when we brought in the workers, we, we, in order to make sure they did the job right, we bought them a pizza. Okay, fine. So now we end up with a pizza, the pizzeria check over there. But this, and the guys have to give a cheshman. You know how it is. You can go crazy. This check, and that, he doesn't have to give a cheshman. He's not required to do that. He does not have to show every stub. He doesn't have to give an accounting. There is a trust factor. The Besden would only appoint somebody who they could trust implicitly. The Rambam says that doesn't mean just because you don't have to stand in a court of law. Just because you don't have to face the, 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 those heirs someday and give them a detailed reckoning, so he says you do have to do it with a cheshbon. 
with a careful reckoning. Ledactic, to be very scrupulous, very exacting, very demanding, because you will have to contend with the father of the orphans. Who is that? Says the Rambam, Shehu Reichavarovas. The Rambam uses a scriptural expression, the one who rides upon the heavens. As it says in the Pasuk, and this is how the Rambam finishes the laws of Nachlas, Solu Lerochev Ba'aravos, make a path for he who rides upon the heavens, and the Pasuk finishes, Avi Yitomim, the father of the orphans. So you may not have to give a reckoning, an accounting to anybody of flesh and blood, to any mortal, but you will someday have to answer before the father of the orphans, the creator of heaven and earth, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and on that note, the Rambam concludes the laws of Nachlas and the 13th book of Rambam, the book of Mishpatim, is thusly concluded.